You're listening to the Table Church Podcast. The Table is a community in Orville, California that aims to follow Jesus by doing what he did. Love God, love our neighbors, and serve those in need. Find us at thetablechurch.net, Instagram, or Facebook. And now for the message. Fourth week of Genesis. We're doing communion later, y'all. I'm gonna... I'll clean it up a little bit. Fourth week of Genesis, uh, f- chapter four and five of Genesis. I told you we weren't going to do full chapters, but um, there's just so much good stuff. So we're going to go quick. I'm going to hit the basics, uh, but we're going to get into it. And what we've learned so far is essentially this. In Genesis chapter one, the God of the cosmos speaks creation into existence and creates us as divine royal beings made in God's own image and in God's own likeness. Chapter 2, God places us in a garden and gives us worth and work to till the garden, to take care of creation, to be partners together in this creative effort of what God has for us. And then last week we learned that the whole thing falls apart, that sin and death and sickness enter into the world because humanity rebelled. They ate of the tree of knowledge when it wasn't time for them to. They disobeyed God, and this is what Christians call the fall. It's the fall from that original glory. The image in us is still there, but it is marred, and it is broken, and all the problems of the world for Christianity really goes back to this story. And we learn that there's a breaking There's a breaking of a relationship this way between humans and God. There's a breaking of a relationship this way between humans and humans. And there's a breaking of a relationship this way between humans and creation. And I pointed out that this is why the cross is so important to us as a symbol, because it reconciles us to the Father, it reconciles us to one another, and it reconciles us back to our original vocation. But in Genesis 4, we're still in the middle of this fall. Last bit of introduction God planted a seed of promise in the middle of this curse, this punishment, this fall. And it was this, that the offspring of the woman, Eve, would crush the head of the serpent, would crush the one who sowed chaos and disorder into this. And that's where our story picks up today. Eve is about ready to have some offspring, and she is pumped about it. As always, if you have any questions, feel free to send them. I'll do my best to answer them, but a lot of the questions that we have about this text, which I'll bring up later, don't have an answer, but we'll do our best. Title of the sermon is My Three Sons and a Tale of Two Lamecks. I love memes, and so these are some of the memes that I, just Abel waiting in heaven for someone else to die. We know the story. Today's Cain and Abel. Abel is the first person to die in the story. Abel is the first person to be murdered in the story. Abel is murdered by his brother, which is fratricide, if you're interested in the big fancy word. There's another one. Abel showing up to heaven after being the first person to die, right? Just like looking around, like just like, this is probably not theologically accurate, but it's funny nonetheless. And then, that's right, memes don't lie. This one's a way more uncouth and unseemly, but um, it's also a meme about the story we're having today, and it's an introduction, but this is Smash Brothers, Super Smash Brothers, the video game. It's a meme I have to show you. That's the rules that's in there. We're doing Genesis 4. 
1 through 532. I'm going to go as quickly as I can. We're not going to read all of chapter 5, but I am going to show it to you. You know the story of Cain and Abel because you know that Cain kills Abel. But I got to tell you, I want you to pay attention because that is one verse in the story. It is not where the author wants us to settle. There's a way in which we read the story where we moralize the text, if you want to write a fancy paper and seminary about it, which is essentially we say, we read the story and we go, okay, you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't murder or whatever it is. But the, the author has such a bigger picture for us in this text. The murder is one verse, but it's a 16-verse story. The, the man, Adam, knew his wife intimately. Eve, remember Adam means human, Eve means life. This is a story about human life. But now after the fall, she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain and said, I have given life to a man with the Lord's help. This should strike you as odd because Adam is not mentioned. It was not, Adam is out of the equation. Like his part wasn't very difficult, but like he wasn't inconsequential to the issue here, right? He like helped out a little bit. On Father's Day, he gets left out of this poor text. But remember... God said the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. She is so excited. It's not even a baby. I didn't give birth to a baby. I gave birth to a man. She has all the hope in the world that this firstborn child, and in these cultures, firstborns are so important. And as is the case with Genesis, God flips all that on his head. Cain, she's so excited. She understands the promise about crushing the serpent. And so the Lord has done something good giving me a man, and I'm excited about it. She names him Cain. Then she gives birth a second time, Cain's brother, Abel. Let me tell you how psyched she is about Abel. His name in Hebrew is Hevel, which means vapor, nothingness, smoke. I don't know. I didn't look it up. Thank you for asking. Somebody look it up for me. Wikipedia that for me. Wikipedia never lies either. Hevel, vapor, nothingness. This is also the point that he's getting ready to be out of the story, but also like all her stock is in this firstborn. Abel, we are told, his vocation cares for the flocks and Cain farms the fertile land. They are doing that original Genesis 1 stuff. They are ruling over creation. They are ruling over the animals and the land, though this is all cursed, right? The land does not produce what it once did. Sometime later, Cain presented an offering to the Lord from the land's crops. He's a farmer, brings his crops. And Abel presented his flock's oldest offspring with their fat. The Lord looked favorably on Abel and his sacrifice, but did not look favorably on Cain and his sacrifice. Cain became very angry and looked resentful, downcast, sad. The Lord shows up and says, Cain, why are you angry and why do you look so resentful? If you do, uh, if you do the right thing, won't you be accepted? But if you don't do the right thing, sin will be waiting at the door ready to strike. It will entice you, but you must rule over it. Remember Genesis 1, Genesis 2, you were to rule over creation. Also, something important here. 
Sin is waiting like a wild animal. There's a passage in Jeremiah that uses the same word for waiting and entice. It's like a wild animal at your door waiting to strike. Remember back in Genesis chapter 3, the curse. Remember, women and men were made equal in worth and work. And then in the fall, things get messed up. And God says to Eve, you will desire your husband and he will rule over you. This is a product of the curse. That word desire is the same word for what sin is doing. Sin desires to rule over Cain, but Cain must rule over it, God says. This is their conversation. Cain then says to his brother Abel, let's go up to the field. When they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. The Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? Cain lies. Remember Genesis 2, Adam and Eve sin. Uh, This is Genesis 3, y'all. Adam and Eve sin. They eat the apple, and God goes, where are you? And they said, we were afraid. We hid. By this point, Cain just straight up lies. Hey, where's your brother? Cain says, I don't know. Am I my brother's guardian, or in the old language, am I my brother's keeper? The answer to this question is, Yes, you are. But he asks it in such a rhetorical way that he just assumes that God would go, I guess not, you know. I guess you're not. But the answer to this question is yes. Am I my brother's keeper? Straight up lies to God. This is the rest of the chapter, and I'm not going to read the rest of that story. But essentially, God, this is a judgment scene. This is a, this is a lawsuit. This is a courtroom. God says, what did you do? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. You are cursed from the ground that opened its mouth to take your brother's blood. It goes on and on, this judgment. Cain says, my punishment is more than I can bear. There's a double entendre, there's a double meaning here, which is also, it's more than I can withstand, but it also means it's more than I can ever be forgiven for. And you've driven me away from the land. Remember, he was a farmer, and you've hidden me from your presence. I'm about to become a roaming nomad and anyone who finds me will kill me. And God enters grace into the story again, always a seed of grace. He says, I'm going to put a mark on you. It's a mark of shame in that you have disobeyed and killed your brother and created the first murder. But it's also a mark of grace that if anybody hurts you, they'll be repaid seven times, avenged sevenfold uh, And then Cain left the Lord's presence, and he settled down in Nod in the east of Eden. Some of the questions we have about this text are these. Why did God reject Cain's offering? How did Cain kill Abel? We often see a rock. It doesn't say, does it? Why is Cain worried about being killed by other people? Aren't there only like four people here? Isn't it Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, (laughs) minus Abel now? And he's like, if anybody finds me, they're going to kill me. These are our modern questions, because we often read these stories hyper-literally. The author has no intention on answering these. This is not the point of the story for the author. These are our questions. The Bible has its own questions. It's not interested in some of those details. The majority of the story centers around 
God's conversation with Cain before the act and God's conversation with Cain after the act. These are the biggest chunks. And so this is where the author really wants us to dive in. You know how I preach, head, heart, hands, something for us to know, something for us to feel, something for us to do so we can take the story and absorb it in a way that it can transform us from our head to our heart to our hands. And here's what I think God wants us to know. We cannot separate our love of God from our love of neighbor. I think that is the most important aspect of this story. That when there is an issue in the story, Cain wants to resolve it by getting rid of his neighbor. He has an issue with God because of his neighbor. God accepts his neighbor's offering, his brother, and doesn't accept his. And to resolve this tension and this anxiety and this frustration that text literally says his anger and his sadness, to resolve all of this, his solution is to get rid of the other whether it's neighbor, brother, sister. And God wants you to know out of this story is that you cannot separate your love of God from your love of neighbor. Right. Where is your brother? Am I my brother's keeper? What did you do? You will be cursed now from your vocation. You'll be run out of the presence of me. I got some passages from 1 John because I really want to bring this home and then I got a story for us. This is what 1 John says Thousands of years later, after the Cain and Abel story, 1 John in the New Testament, after Jesus, he says, this is the message that you heard from the beginning, love one another. Don't behave like Cain. Okay, great, thank you. We know that we have transferred from death to life because we love the brothers and sisters. Here, he means the church, uh, but he's at using the language of brothers and sisters. This is how you know that you're in life because you love the brothers and sisters. The person who does not love remains in death. Everyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that murderers don't have eternal life residing in them. He goes on. Those who say, I love God and hate their brother or sister are liars. After all, those who don't love their brothers or sisters whom they have seen can hardly love God whom they have not seen. This commandment we have from him, those who claim to love God ought to love their brother and sister also. I think the main thing that God wants us to take away from the Cain and Abel story is that you cannot separate your love of God from your love of those around you. And we want to. We want to so bad because it would just make things less messy, less tense, It'd be less jealousy and anxiety. It'd be less frustrating all around. And God won't let us do it. This is Dorothy Day. Loved Jesus very much. Had a conversion. She was in the academic world um, for the beginning parts of her life. Had a conversion in the 30s. Uh, and really, it just, into the Episcopal Church and then into the Catholicism. And she made such a difference in her community by starting like places for people to live and, and farm workers movement. She was really a radical. So if you don't like radicals, don't read much about her story, but very much a radical. And uh, to the point that like when popes come to America to talk, the last two popes that have come to America to talk, they, they bring her up. She's on the track to become a saint in the Catholic church, which is a way big deal. In our church, if you follow Jesus, you're a saint. In their church, you've got to do some miracles. It's a mess. It's like a whole thing. It's like a checklist. But they think so highly of her that she's on the track to sainthood. Um, and I think about her because I think about this quote from her, which is a striking quote. It says this. I really only love God as much as the person I love the least. 
She understood the message of Cain and Abel, which is that you cannot separate your love from God from your love for those around you, brothers, sisters, neighbors. We must resist turning this text into a good moral story about not murdering or trying to find a better way to worship so that God accepts our sacrifice or whatever. The author wants us to see the connection between our love of God and the love of others. Yeah? You feel good about that? Great. What does God want us to feel? What does God want us to feel? What's the feeling language in this passage? God wants us to be free from anger's danger. And let me say right off the bat, anger is not bad. Anger is an emotion that you have. Anger is a proper emotion in many instances. I'm not trying to come, I don't want you to walk away from this part of the passage and say, anger is bad. All the time, scripture tells us that there's times to be angry. We know Jesus was angry. Paul says, don't sin in your anger, which means that you can be angry in a way that does not lead to sin. But there are also ways in which sin can creep in in the middle of anger. There's a way in which we can be angry that allows sin to enter into our life. We see it in Cain, and we know it's true for our own self. Right? Cain became very angry and resentful. God has a conversation with him, and the first question is, why are you angry and so resentful? There's a way in which God wants to talk to us about it so that it doesn't lead to something else, which is namely that there is a thing There's an evil force, there's a chaos, there's a disorder, there's this destructive thing waiting at your door ready to entice you that wants to rule over you. Be careful, anger is powerful, but it also can can warp our mind in such a way that we make mistakes. I found a bunch of old athletes talking about anger. I thought it was helpful. This is uh, a guy from the Dolphins in the 70s. He says, it's really dangerous for a pro football player to get angry. In fact, that's when linemen sustain their most serious injuries. Anger is so harmful in football that if I can get an opposing lineman or end angry at me, he will concentrate on beating me and forget to attack the quarterback. And that's my job, to protect the quarterback. There's a way in which you can get angry in sports and it makes you make mistakes. Another guy The wide receivers are continually trying to make us angry each time they come into our area because they know if they can upset us emotionally, they can fool us on the next play. This guy's a little more modern. He says, George Kuntz, if you lose your temper, you're going to really make mistakes. I've been um, listening to this guy a little bit. He's a UFC fighter. I've never seen a fight. I don't enjoy UFC or watch it at all, but, so I just lost a lot of credibility. But this is the Nigerian nightmare, Kamaro Usman, and he is a philosopher when it comes to sports. I mostly watch his interviews for the philosophy that he gives me. Also, I watch a show called The Hot Ones where they eat hot wings and they interview each other, and I enjoy it very much. And he was on an episode... And he says, I haven't been in a fight yet where it was malicious, where I was maliciously trying to hurt somebody. I haven't been in that fight. My mind is strong. I don't compete. Oh, I want to kill this guy. Then you start swinging five punches and you miss and you're dead tired. I don't compete like that. And this is the line that got me. Fatigue makes cowards out of everyone. And I'm going to use this again next time I preach on rest, Sabbath. Fatigue makes cowards out of everyone. But he's saying he doesn't fight in an angry way because then you start throwing punches and you get tired and you get messed up and it ruins your whole thing. There's a way in which we can be angry or let anger rule our lives so that in a way that that, that sin can come in and mess up a lot of stuff. 
anger, not bad in and of itself, a very natural emotion, and sometimes it's necessary for what's going on in the world. But there's a way. We see it in Cain. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those who lived long ago, don't commit murder. And all who commit murder will be in danger of judgment. Can we agree on that? Murder, bad? Okay, perfect. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with their brother and sister will be in danger of judgment. Not judged. You're just walking a fine line. And if they say to their brother or sister, you idiot, they will be in danger of being condemned by the governing council. And if they say, you fool or raka, Jesus says, uh, they will be in danger of fiery hell. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, this is Cain and Abel, and remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go. First make things right with your brother and sister and then come back to your gift. I cut it off. Just some other words there. How many religious people do you know that would say, hey, if you got something going on with a brother or a sister, skip church and go make things right with them. That's what Jesus is saying. Your brother and sister is more important than your act of worship. Make that right. Because that anger can get in and lead to the death of a relationship or worse. If you don't rule over your anger, there is a way in which it can rule over you. Anger, again, isn't bad in and of itself, but Cain had a choice. Without ruling over it, it will rule over us. Yeah? You feel good? So be mindful of anger's danger. Don't live in a constant state of anger. If you are, you got to figure that out. Go see some of my friends in the counseling field. Lastly, tale of two Lamechs. I want to end the story with how the story ends. we got to learn some more information. Bear with me here. Lamechs are these people. So this is Cain's lineage. I know it's a wall of text. And I know it's small. I'm not going to read it all. But Cain knew his wife intimately, and they had some kids. Cain builds a city outside of, uh, of Eden. His family gets really good at, uh, see, they're blacksmiths and they're artisans. Hey, I just thought about that. Blacksmiths and artisans, they become artsy. They start building stuff. They're, they start metalworking. They, they're, 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 the people that come from Cain do some great stuff. But there's a guy here named Lamech, and he's the first person in the Bible to have two wives. And Lamech is also the first person to get a song. And his song says, he's singing to his wives, and he says, listen to my voice and pay attention to my words. If you ever see that in the text, something important is about to happen. Pay attention. Even if he's talking to Ada and Zilla, he says, I killed a man for wounding me, a boy for striking me. So Cain will be paid back seven times. I will be paid back 77 times. There's so much going on here. First, do you remember what Jesus says to Peter? Forgive 77 times, seven times. He's counteracting Lamech's curse. But also, what this Lamech is saying is that I'm going to multiply violence on the earth. If anybody hurts me, I'm going to hurt him back. If anybody hits me, I'm going to kill them. I don't even care if they're a child. And if anybody kills me, they're going to get paid back 77 times. Cain's family multiplies violence upon the earth. But there's always a bit of hope. Adam knew Eve again, intimately. And she gave birth to a son and she names him Seth. I love that it's such a normal name. It's like Cain, Abel, Seth. 
Seth. <laughs> and she, Seth, she named him that because God's given me another child in place of Abel who came killed. Seth fathered a bunch of people. It's 10 generations. I'm not going to read it. <laughs> Just trust me. It's 10. There's some good stuff in it. I know the genealogies are often the most boring part of Scripture, but there's some details in there that you have to see. Remember, Cain had a Lamech in his genealogy, and that Lamech multiplied violence on the earth. Seth has a bunch of kids, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalel, Jared. It's like, how do you get Mahalel and Jared? It's just in my ears. Enoch, Methuselah. And when Methuselah was a million years old, I don't know how old they, he became the father of Lamech. There's two Lamechs, one from Cain, one from Seth. And after Lamech's birth, uh, Lamech became the father of a son and named him Noah, saying, this is the one who will give us rest and relief from our hard work, from the pain of our hands, because of the fertile land that the Lord has cursed. One Lamech multiplies violence on the earth. The other Lamech remembers the hope of God and speaks that into the world and into his family. That's what I want you to do. Oh, sorry, I zoomed it in so you could see that. Give us relief from hard work. Don't put your hope in self-protection like Lamech from Cain. Don't put your hope in that multiplication of violence. Put your hope in the salvation promise, which is that God will crush the head of the serpent, bring order back to the chaos, Bring reconciliation back to us and to one another and back to you. I'm going to let um, Lisa Sharon Harper give 20 seconds of, of sermon, and then we will wrap up. If you have any questions, send them. This is what she says. What is actually the good news in Scripture? And for me, it started in Genesis, and it's weaved its way all the way throughout. And I believe that the good news that Jesus himself proclaimed was that in following the Jesus way, in following the way of good news, then this world could be healed. She has a book called The Very Good Gospel, but I love that she says, you see this hope in the beginning, that promise to Eve and her offspring. Eve thinks it's Cain. It's not Cain. Lamech thinks it's Noah. It might be Noah. You have to come back next week to find out. What's the promise? An offspring of Eve will crush the head of the serpent. Lamech uh, he's, he believes that his son Noah will give him rest for a cursed land. I'm here to tell you it's not Cain or Noah. We know that it's Jesus. Jesus offers us this invitation of rest. Come to me all who are struggling hard and carrying heavy loads, and I will give you rest. And you will find not just regular rest, but rest for your souls. I have some questions. I have not seen them. Send them if you got them. Someone's telling me what Cain's name means. Something produced or a spear. That's right. It does mean something produced. Remember, she says, I produced a man with the Lord's help. And so that's what his name means. Something made, something produced. You are right. I knew that. I forgot. Thank you so much. I appreciate you sending that. Somebody else sent me that. Something produced or a spear. I appreciate that. You guys are so helpful. 
somebody was like, somebody's asking, uh, essentially, why Cain's sacrifice and not God's? Is it because God appreciated a nice, delicious lamb chop more than some? And that is one theory. There's a couple theories. There's probably five theories about why God accepts Cain's and not Abel's. Thank you for asking. Um, one of them is that God likes meat. And all the sacrifices, or many of them, you, it's an animal that is sacrificed. But if you read closely, there are also a lot of sacrifices in the Old Testament where there's grain and there's fruit. And so God doesn't prefer meat over fruit? That's a great question. The other one that a lot of people, well, Hebrews 11 tells us that um, Abel offers his by faith and Cain doesn't. And I appreciate the author of Hebrews telling us that bit of information, but it's not in our text. If you were just reading Genesis 4, you would not see that. Uh, So there's one essentially that Abel is just more heartfelt about his. Uh, Another theory is that it was the crop it was the crop that Adam and Eve ate that, that made them rebel against God. And Cain, in the likeness of his father, is using these crops to try to make things right again. And so maybe there's this idea that, like, maybe Cain's a little bit arrogant. Like, if this God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use these crops to try to get back into God's grace after my parents ate the crop to get out of it. Essentially, what I'm here to tell you is that there's no answer to this question. The text has no desire to tell us why God preferred Abel over Cain. There is a pattern in Genesis. The firstborn in these societies was the most important. I'm the firstborn, so I like this idea. But multiple times, God reverses this and elevates the secondborn. You have Jacob and Esau. Jacob's the younger. There's this idea that God is going to flip these cultural ideas on their head and elevate the second one and so um, that could be what's going on in the story. But really, there's no, there's no answer. It, it, it is a plot device for God to get into a conversation with, with Cain, to talk about his anger, to talk about his choice to rule over sin, and then for Cain to not do that. Last call. Oh, I got some more. Yes. Does pineapple go on pizza? Yes. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. A man after my own heart, literally. (laughs) Yeah, someone's bringing up this thing about how long they lived. And there's a lot of theories about that. So someone someone was like, Adam almost lived to see Lamech and Methuselah lived to be almost a thousand years old. Yes. And there's a lot of theories about that. And we're not told (laughs) why they lived so long. I can tell you that this was common all over the Middle East, that there were other... Uh, cultures that listed out genealogies and people lived to be a trillion years old. Not trillion, but they lived a long time. We do get an answer later where God limits the human life to about 120, but, you know, I don't have any plans of making it that long. Like that's, (laughs) but that's like the, and even after God says this person, people will not live past 120 and there's a few people that do, so that's not an exact figure. Uh, but I don't understand. I mean, there's some people try to do biology and, and they say maybe the atmosphere wasn't as thick as it was and things lived to be bigger and older. We don't know. We don't know. The text has no desire to answer that for us. Um, but it is unique. Here's my conclusion for you. And then we're done. When Adam and Eve and Cain sinned, God comes to them immediately and I want you to have that picture. It is our will to, uh, when we mess up, to run away and to hide or to lie. 
But God shows up to them immediately and asks them a question. And this is a form of grace. God asks Adam and Eve, where are you? And God asks Cain, where is your brother? And those are the same question. Where are you? And where is your brother and your sister and your neighbor? And we don't want to do this oftentimes. We like that one. God's asking about where we are and how we're doing and what's our closest level to God. But God wants to know these are the same questions. You cannot separate your love for your neighbor from your love for God. And so that's my uh, spiritual practice for you. Jesus says it, right? This is the first and greatest commandment is to love God with your whole self and love your neighbor as yourself. Everything hangs on that. The second is like the first. Everything hangs on this idea that you cannot separate these two. So I'd love for you to ask yourself that when you wake up. Where am I? Where's my neighbor? Start your day that way. Maybe a couple days. Maybe every day this week. Maybe every day for the rest of your life. Ask yourself these questions. Where am I? Where's my neighbor? Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you for this ancient story that we know, but we don't sometimes get into the details of. Help us. Help us. Help us to take away from this idea that to love you is to love others. To love others well is what you've called us to do out of your love that you've given to us. And may we resist every temptation to separate those. Or to try to move away so we don't have any neighbors, so we don't ever have to ask the question, where is my neighbor? Help us to be mindful of the people around us. And would you help us to love well? Because we cannot do it without you. It is a work of your grace and your spirit in our lives that we can love anything meaningfully. We only love because you first loved us. And so we pray that we'd be overwhelmed by your love so that we may receive and give. Lord, help us to be mindful of our anger. We all got some. And sometimes... It can do damage. So would you help us to discern well when things are righteously anger and when things are problematic, when there's danger involved? And Father, as we come to the table, to the bread and the cup, we pray that you would meet us here and that your Holy Spirit would do that work that only it can do in our lives. Table Church, would you pray with me now the Lord's Prayer? saying, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 